I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today on episode 114, I'm going to talk to Kit Cummings. Kit's mission is to bring the gospel to the least of all people. His prison ministry has impacted thousands of inmates both here in the States and around the world. He is an author of six books, including 40 Days of Prayer. Pam and I hired Kit to teach our church this summer over eight weeks. We read his book and listened to him talk about miracles. Find out the journey he took to become a preacher to the prisons. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I want to invite you to the 2021 Small Church Leadership Conference. The theme is Climb. This is for anyone who wants to grow, who's leading a small ministry or small church, and who desires to get inspired and get encouraged coming out of COVID. This is the second conference that we've had. The first one we entitled Look Up, but this one is called Climb. It's December 2nd through 5th, 2021, December 2nd through 5th of this year in Dallas, Texas. We're staying at the Marriott Las Colinas. We've arranged hotel prices of $109 per night. Early registration is $125 until June 30th. Then it goes up to $150 until August 31st. And after that, it'll be $175. So please, you don't want to miss this event. It's going to be so inspiring, so encouraging, so equipping. You can register today at robskinner.com and look for the Climb Conference tab. That's robskinner.com forward slash climb dash conference. I look forward to seeing you in Dallas in December of 2021. Kit, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Me too. I, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, having you teach my church for the past eight weeks has been such a blessing, and I'm so grateful for what you've done, just your life, and I look forward to keeping in touch going forward. Yeah, I, I loved it. I'm so impressed with your uh, with your congregation, your family there, and the way you're building it. It's so easy to connect and. Yeah, I feel forever connected. Um, you can't get rid of me. We're friends. <laughs> well, once once I, I I got to know you a little bit, I thought I got to have this guy on my program, my podcast. Can you tell us how you became a Christian? <laughs> yeah. So I just celebrated my 32nd spiritual birthday. Wow. So it was 1989. Um I was probably the least likely guy to definitely to go in the ministry, but maybe just to become a Christian at all. <laughs> we, we honestly, you know, I grew up in a, um, a good family that taught me good morals. I didn't make good choices, but, um, but I just, it wasn't my thing. I didn't go to church. I had never studied the Bible before. I would kind of go to, I don't know if you guys have young life or FCA, you know, kind of, but it was more just kind of a popular thing. And so, Anyway, drug and alcohol addiction run through my family line. 
and um, especially through the men and uh, my dad and his dad and his dad and it didn't miss me and uh, <laughs> and so early on I began to medicate um, feelings you know it was kind of a you know those that are adult children of alcoholics it's a very insecure tumultuous kind of family situation sometimes and and that's how I grew up. And so um, I grew up basically hiding and, you know, kind of doing what I wanted to do, but being the son that said, you know, no, I won't go work in your field. And then, you know, change your mind and do it. I was the other guy. <laughs> I was like, yes, I will. And then I didn't do it. Um, and so anyway, it was kind of just the perfect storm. Um, my dad passed when I was in college and it was, it wasn't, you know, it was a tough way to go. And, mm. and, um, and that set me up kind of for a, a little season of just wild, you know, I mean, I was, I was out there um, doing a lot of things growing up and, um, and then I met a guy, you know, I was trying to get in shape. I was, I was trying to stop drinking, you know, I was 25 and I'd literally gone through a, a burnout at 25, which is kind of like, wow, that's, that's young, but that's right. how hard I was going drinking, drugging. And, uh, and I went and tried to, you know, a basketball player growing up, pretty decent. And um, so I decided I want to get in shape. And so I went to the, the YMCA, started playing basketball. And, uh, and there was a guy that was out there and he just was set apart. He was different. He kind of had a shine to him, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he was clean and he didn't cuss. We're all out there just being pagans. And uh, he always remembered my name. I never remembered his, you know, it was just <laughs> like, this guy. it was just like, man. And so, you know, one day I just, I, I decided I got to figure out what's up with this guy. And so I, I, um, I went to, uh, followed him to the water fountain and, um, I said, <laughs> basically I said, what is your deal? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, uh, what do you do? And he said, I'm a minister. And, um, and I said, well, I never met a minister like you. He was young and cool, good athlete, but he seemed to really care generally about people. And so I literally went from there and I said, um, where's your church? And he said, downtown Atlanta. And I said, can I come? And he said, I was going to invite you today. And I said, can I bring my girlfriend? He said, yep. And so I said, I'll meet you there. And so we were there early, halfway through the sermon, I was crying. You know, it's like, man, this is what I've been looking for. And, uh, and again, I didn't have a, a spiritual bone in my body. And uh, so I went and met Steve Sapp, who was leading that church and turned myself in and said, hey, can we have lunch? You know, I was just the perfect mark. And I, I went to, to Ron, you know, the guy that, uh, that uh, met and, you know, helped me become a Christian. And I said, man, I, I want to study the Bible. <laughs> he said, so it set us on it. I mean, I would have been quicker than two weeks if they'd have let me run the pace but it took two <laughs> weeks I was baptized and within nine months I was in the ministry it's like you know I don't do anything a little bit so I was like I gotta preach and I'd never spoken before and so it was it was that it was just God had his way with me but it was really the example of a guy that stood out mm -hmm. to me you know tell me about the, those early days in the ministry uh before 2003 man it was, you know, I felt like I had come home. I was looking for a family, a place to belong, you know, a safe place to be validated, you know, very complicated relationship with my dad. And now he's gone. I can't fix it. We weren't cool when he left. And, uh, and so it was everything I'd been looking for. And so they embraced me. You know how we do. 
and um, and just just love me, uh, you know. And and I was just like a uh, I was a, a mess. And then you know I quickly figured out, man, whatever I want to do, what he does, mm-hmm. you know, it's Ron Clendenin and, and the guy who saved my life. And uh, I watched him and I, you know, we'd get together and then I would just follow him around. And then I'd, I'd get into studies and watch him do the studies and I'd watch him teach. And I'm like, man, if I could ever do that. Right. And see um, Stephen Kim in Atlanta, the church was, you know, I don't know, 600 people or something. It was kind of small. It grew to 5,000, wow. you know, over the next 10, 12 years. So, I mean, it was like, I was a part of that. And I was the beginning of the youth movement in Atlanta. Stephen Kim had only been there a few months when I was, you know, baptized and, and he wanted a young staff and there was no young guys on staff. You know, there was just no real campus ministry singles. Yes, but it was an older. And so he hired me, you know, nine months in. And um, so I kind of became that, you know, young, zealous, passionate guy that turned out to have a gift. So it was a crazy ride. And I just, you know, I started out with campus ministry and then I started an arts and entertainment ministry and then singles, you know how we do. And I just raised up pretty quickly. Somewhere along the way, I think that I I became very, very concerned. Maybe I always was about what people thought, especially the ones that were over me, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the ones that had authority over me and I was terribly, um, desperate to please right you know what i'm saying and so that would kind of over the long term become my undoing but i was all in you know i was wanted to do anything and everything and i couldn't wait for the next um opportunity and it, they came fast mm. i'm not i think that might answer your question yeah what what led you into prison ministry <laughs> wow I might have to move, move through this little season. So, <laughs> so anyway, somewhere along the line, you know, I started getting thirsty again and playing games. Like anybody that has one out of 10 of us has an issue with addiction of some kind. Doesn't have to be alcohol, drugs, can be anything. But our brains are built a little different. And, um, and I was definitely that guy. And so basically I, you know, exchanged my addiction for alcohol and drugs and things and and I became addicted in a good way to God. You know, once I tasted that the Lord was good, it's like right. I wanted more, 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 more. And that was really good. But then somewhere along the line, it became my calling became a career as I was in charge of managing more things, whether right. it be a thousand singles in the southeast or managing a couple other churches besides mine. And eventually kind of became the right hand guy, you know, to Steve over, you know. And it was heavy. And so that led to my second burnout in life at 40. And I went through a real tough time that I really brought on myself, you know, um, ended up going through a divorce, which was very, very, oh, anybody's gone through that. God bless them, man. It's, but for a, you know, a preacher and a pretty, you know, I mean, I was kind of prominent, I don't know, that's a good word, but you know what I'm saying. I know. In charge of a lot of people. And, and after I, I fell out, that was 0203. I just, I, I got out when a lot of guys were getting out, but a lot of them were getting out for conviction. I was getting out because I was tired and I just couldn't mm-hmm. do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Marriage was on the rocks. You know, I was drinking. And so it was the perfect storm. And when I got out of the ministry, my marriage quickly fell apart because we weren't surrounded by 
elders and right. you know peers and you know evangelists i was always very protected they always had at least two elders on me so i couldn't get too much <laughs> but, you know after i got out there there wasn't anybody around me and i just oh gosh i became back i went back to that guy you know that was pre-august 19 oh. 1989 and I thought all that stuff was taken away in the waters of baptism. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I understand I was washed and I was cleansed and the blood, I get it, you know, and I never doubted that. But now all of a sudden I was, you know, I was out there and that sinful nature that I thought kind of was, was gone. It had been doing push-ups in the parking lot. <laughs> you waiting on me to get out there. And so, you know, I went out there and did what I do, which is I go after everything with all I got, good, bad, ugly, whatever. And I messed up and it was divorce, rehab and bankruptcy in my 40th year. It was and my seeing gosh. my kids on the weekend. And I was like, and it was very public. You know, you're not paranoid when everybody really is talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was quite a story, you know what I'm saying? Oh and, and again, I can't be mad at anybody. I was mad at everybody, but I, I, I got over that because I was like, man, nobody did this to me. And so, um, but anyway, I was, I was out there and I was alone and, and I was just tortured for a year, you know, and then I, I had my last drink in December of 2005. So in my, on my 16th year, that's a big deal in my family life, right? So that was the beginning of my road back, but I went through five years of trying to figure out who the heck am I? what happened with my relationship with God, you know, everything that I believed in just fell apart. And, you know, I was, I was just, um, I was out there again. And so for five years, I was doing things that I didn't, I didn't want to do. I was, I mean, can you imagine me as a, um, a banker? Do I look like a banker? <laughs> you know, and I did, you know, a little bit of real estate, a little bit of insurance. I was just hustling and I developed a real respect for all the brothers and sisters that allowed me to lead them as hard as, oh my gosh. Right. Cause now I was out there hustling and, and it was very challenging, but my heart was broken because I couldn't do not only what I love to do, but what I believe I was born to do and called to do is all those things. God gave me the gift. He got me in position. He saved me. He called me and he, my gift was given and he did everything he was supposed to do. And I squandered it and I became the prodigal son at 40. And, um, and that broke my heart because all I want to do is preach. And now, obviously, I'm not saying, obviously, there was, there's more to life than preaching, but as far as a calling, and a profession, I'd blown it. And there was a lot of people that had very strong convictions about what I was qualified to do and not to do, which I respect. I mean, I, Bible's very clear, you know, I don't, I don't need to be a pastor or elder or deacon, or I believe even a teacher, you know, it's like there's different roles, but could I preach again? Okay. That was interesting, which the Bible calls an evangelist. And then I thought, well, legion, that dude was about as bad as it gets. Right. And then after he was dressed in his right mind, he went and preached to 10 cities. So I'm like, I, you know, maybe he'll do that. And so I had a very significant prayer and I, I committed to God. I said, if you ever let me preach the word again, I'll go to the harassed and helpless. I don't even know how I came up with that idea. You know, I think he put it on my heart. And I named it. I said, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the naked, the stranger, the prisoner, you know, the least of these, you know, that Jesus adored because he was one of them. And, um, and I, I meant it. 
And then it was like, in Jesus' name, amen. And then three years went by where that fruit did not show. I mean, it, it appeared as if God had not answered my prayer. Um, but I wasn't ready to receive the prayer for three full years. It was like he was preparing me to do what I had committed to do. And God brought a kingdom kid into my life. And um, he happened to be a beautiful little Latino boy. He's about 12, 13. And he was a kingdom kid. You know, he would come up after the sermons and uh, Mr. Kid, Mr. Kid, he'd tell me what he learned. And, and um, I really be- uh, grew fond of him and he came like my little brother. And then I went off to lead another church and I lost him and he went to high school and he ended up getting jumped into a very dangerous gang. And, um, yeah, it's part of my story is MS-13, and um, which is the, anybody knows that whole gang. It's the worst of the worst. They're the most dangerous, ruthless, unpredictable. Come out of El Salvador, and, and oh, man, they're tough. And so he not only became a member, but he, he became a leader. And so when I found him, you know, beautiful sister that was part of a congregation I led, still very faithful, she reached out to me on Facebook you know, which was pretty new at the time, and um, and said, Luis is in big trouble, can you go help him, and I was like, yes, and you know, in my mind, he's still 13, but right. it's been 10, 12 years, right, and so I drive to the jailhouse, and he's there, and and um, and what walks out is not a little boy, but a grown man, and um, who just, I mean, covered with tats, and his eyes just looked like they had died, and but when he saw me, his face lit up and he mm. smiled. And I remembered that kid mm. and we hugged, you know, and that became, that was a moment for me because I saw him for who he was. I mean, I knew him when he was 12. I didn't see this MS-13 violent man that was charged with a gang-related murder and a potential death penalty. The feds took over this case and they aimed to kill him. And I'm like, whoa. So I was thrown into this, this crazy ministry and I was working with my little brother. I wasn't working with a dangerous gang leader because they told me how dangerous he was. And um, over two years, through the glass on the phone, I followed him from one institution to another. And he ended up getting baptized on Cinco de Mayo behind the glass. And this was, <laughs> it goes against everything that was in our box. I'm like, I can't, this dude, you know, he just, he's ready. He's ready to die for Jesus. Because I said, are you ready to die for Jesus? That was counting the cost with him. And he said, I've been willing to die for my gang for 10 years. I'll die for him. Like, yes. And I was like, he may be baptized. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I this is, goes against all the rules. I can't hang with him. He's getting ready to be shipped off somewhere. And so I ended up testifying in court for him. MS-13 sent me a, you know, very scary text. You know, I had to, you know, we had cops in my cul-de-sac for a minute. You know, it was crazy. And God wow. just threw me in. And one night when I was driving home from the jailhouse and I'm crying and I'm praying, um, I remembered that prayer. Wow. And it was, if you ever let me preach the word again, I'll go to the, well, he was all those things, naked, lonely, and strained, and sick, and prisoner, and hungry. And so when I was invited to go into a prison shortly after that, see, God took two more years to prepare me before he sent me into the worst prison in the state of Georgia. And when I went in there, it was like Disneyland. I was fascinated because I had just seen a miracle with the hated you know, feared and forgotten. And so I was ripe and ready. And that launched this prison ministry that I didn't choose. I mean, God just answered my prayers. on. That, that's amazing. And what makes me wonder is like how, how God 
both calls you to that work and how he, the mistakes you make, you know, they're, they're not good. But at the same time, God has known that from before the beginning of creation that you're going to do this amazing work. It, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. What's the scariest situation you've faced either in prisons or, or helping gangs? I think the one I just referred to was a little, yeah, I was a little nervous because that was in the streets. I mean, that was like out here in the free world, you know, where it's a little more unpredictable, you know, in the prisons, is it dangerous? Yeah. I mean, but it, but it's a little more predictable <laughs> out in the streets. You can't predict it. And so the, the text that I got, you know, was worse than dying. It was like what they said they were going to do. And so you know, I was, that was kind of a moment because I'm having to explain to my wife why there's a, you know, cop car in the cold sack. I'm like, baby, I'm sorry. But I, think, <laughs> but I, I was trying to, and so, so she's thrown into this world, but I'm still going to court with him. And I mean, I wasn't going to quit on him. So I had to face, you know, reality there. And, um, but then there was this crazy time in the first prison um, that led to a hundred you know, across the country in four continents. I mean, prison became my thing. Um, it was early on in this thing that would become the Power of Peace Project, you know, which is my movement. And it was a prison peace movement. Now it's bled over into the schools. But, um, you know, it, it was starting to build. It was 12 men, white, black, and brown. We had a crib of blood, a gangster disciple, a, a militant Muslim, the Aryan Brotherhood. I mean, we just had this little band of brothers and we were dreaming together. And they, I gave them a challenge and we did an experiment and they tried to see if they could live nonviolently in Georgia's worst prison just for 40 days. And I wrote what became, you know, the first little book around it that I wrote and, and magic happened and the word started spreading in that camp instead so they they were supposed to keep it to themselves and they couldn't and so they started bringing me these gang leaders and connected guys and i <laughs> people started out like i knew what i was doing i didn't have a clue it started as a little bible study that i took into the prison and it grew and then it became this thing and so you know the word spreading and i went to the warden and i said the only way we're going to really get to this thing is if you let me go in the dorms but they don't let volunteers go in the dorms in that prison and not during that time. It was dangerous. There was gang wars going on. And so I don't know why he always let me do what I wanted to do. And when <laughs> I met with these really powerful rivals, <laughs> they didn't put an officer in the room, which makes no sense. Oh my gosh. They were not restrained and they were enemies and they're in a little bit small chapel with me looking at me like I'm an expert and I'm just the guy that's trying to do what God said to do. And so anyway, Two things happened during that thing. Well, one, a, a kite is a means of communication, little strips of paper that are written so small that you can hardly read it. And they're passed from one dorm to another, or you get it to solitary through a guard, you know, that might be on the take. And it's a way they communicate. And so one of the kites went out that said, tell the white boy to watch his back. And it's like, uh oh, <laughs> that's like that, that. There's a reason that they sent that to one of my guys. And so it's like, dang. So it's like an active threat. And so at the same time, I'm asking the warden, let me go in the dorms. And so he says, I'll let you go, but you're going to have to take two CERT team members with you, which is the critical emergency response team. 
they're the guys in black that are big steroid freaks and they got the, I mean, they go in there, if they come, it ain't a good day. And so I'm like, I don't want them to come with me. And he says, the only way I'll let you do it. So, okay. And so there's 15 dorms on the compound. And I started in the first one. And for three hours, I made the run through all of them. And what I was, it was in the middle of the summer, hundred degrees in the, in the, the cell block. And they have this huge fan, which you can't hear over. And I got these two cert guys with me. They don't know I'm coming. Friday morning is the only time they get to sleep in. There's no count. And so I would walk into the dorm. They would see the cert guys with me. I'd unplug the fan, which wasn't very popular. And then I would have five minutes to try to engage them. And so the way I did it was Dr. King said, and Martin Luther King still carries respect. And all of a sudden they're coming out of the showers, they're playing cards at the table, they're hanging out on the tier. And, and all of a sudden this free world guy comes in and starts preaching about Dr. King. And I would uh, challenge them to become a part of the peace movement. And we left a, a paper behind and they could sign if they wanted to become a part of it. So 350 guys signed that day as I wow. went through 1,200 men in the prison. So 25% were like, yeah, I'm in. And we started having an open call out on Fridays. And the thing, it became the most peaceful prison in the, in the state for a short time in one institution of the year. Went worse to first. But the scary thing was, yeah, I got way too comfortable in a place you shouldn't be comfortable. Right. And as I'm preaching, I want you to put yourself in, in my place. Okay, you're preaching. All right, you're in the middle of a sermon. And you've got a congregation in front of you. All of a sudden, somebody walks up behind you and whispers in your ear while you're speaking. That's what happened to me. Coming up from behind me, that's one thing. And he said, um, you better get that beep out of here, white boy. And just, you know, challenged me as I was preaching. And so I couldn't stop. So I just kept preaching. <laughs> and so... I went out and then I went to the next one. And, and remember, there was a credible threat. Tell the white boy to watch his back. Well, I just heard that. And so it was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm like, I'm not gonna, I can't stop. And so, you know, miracles happen. But then the, the word kind of got out that I can't really say the, my nickname. I don't want to offend anybody. I'll say it. Um, but they <laughs> called, you know, this is a safe place. But um, they called me the crazy cracker. That was kind of the, the thing. And they're like, man. I don't know what we think about him, but he's crazy. And we dig that. And so that kind of became my thing as I wasn't afraid and they embraced me. And so, you know, that's a couple of times, but there's a whole lot of stories where it was kind of edgy and, you know. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. <laughs> so that's You're how, learning how to preach when you go preaching the world. Oh my gosh. I can't. People don't know you, you know? Right. So that's how you got the 40 days uh, concept you just said hey let's just try if we can create peace in the prison for 40 days and that was 40 days of peace or one the first one was called 40 days of peace okay yep okay then and you then you went to later on you went to tijuana and you you were sharing about this the other night which was pretty amazing can you can you hit on that yeah, a, a wonderful brother in San Diego. You probably know him, Jeff Wadstrom. He'd been around, um, became a good friend of mine. He read a book of mine, reached out. We started talking, found out about his work in Tijuana, flew out there, went in Tijuana, changed my life. Tijuana is arguably the most dangerous city in the world, unless you're talking about war-torn, you know, Middle East or Sudan, right. or, you know, right. whatever. And so, um, 
man, I went down there and saw what they were doing with the kids, these kids that come off the streets and they were protecting them from the cartels through soccer. And it, it blew my mind. So the reason Jeff worked, uh, reached out was he heard I was doing prisons and he said a lot of our players, kids, you know, the, the players have parents, you know, fathers that are in prison. There's a prison in Tijuana called La Mesa. And so La Mesa is 5,000 men packed into a prison that's built for 2,500. And it's a third world prison in a cartel world. So the cartel runs it. And, um, and it was fascinating. So we went in there. And I had uh, one of my books, um, now it was called 40 Days to Freedom, right? I changed it now, 40 Days to Peace for Israel, and had it translated in Spanish through IPI, Tony Mahal and those guys. And, um, and we took it in, and they gave us 50 guys from, you know, one of the, the tougher places where they were having some issues. And so those guys marched in, they didn't know who I was, me and Jeff, <laughs> and, and um, I don't speak Spanish, right. you know, they didn't speak English, most of them didn't speak English. But our interpreter was named Jesus. <laughs> so I joke say Jesus was with it. And so um, miracles happened. You know, over the next six, eight weeks, it was so cool how these guys came together. And I thought, man, this is universal. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. And but the way that it started was, and again, imagine if this was your challenge for the day. So he sent me to the place where they were just, I mean, I'm talking about rough dudes, and there were 10 cells in a row on this big row and each of them had 15 to 20 inmates in one that's where they live they're just in that cell and they get out every now and then to go wreck or you know go out and get some sunshine but basically they live 15 guys in a cell and they have to figure out how to do life who gets food who gets the bed space how do they bathe just the whole deal how do they deal with conflict and so i asked the the warden if i could kind of generate some interest you know in the power peace project is coming and so, but they're all next to each other and they can hear one another. And so I go to the first one and I said, hey, listen, Power Peace Project, we're coming here. It's a peace movement, man, throw a peace signs. And they're looking at me and I said, peace signs. And I have an interpreter. And so they're like, you know, peace signs. <laughs> and I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. If you guys want to be a part of this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to yell, pas es mi poder, which is the closest thing to saying, I am the power of peace, which is our deal. And so the first ones, I was like, okay, one, two, three, peace signs, process me, put there. And they're like, process me, put there. You know, it's kind of like it was, all right, that was pretty good. All right, well, I'm coming back. See you soon. Then I went to the next cell right next to him. And I said, do you hear that? I said, no, nah, like, we're not going to do it like that. Do you guys, I mean, come on, I need real men. And it's being interpreted and they're like tripping on me. <laughs> and I said, now I'm going to say, process me, put there, one, two, three. And they're like, process me, put there. And I was like, ah, oh, it's pretty good. Well, the next one, they're expecting me. Right. And so I go right next door to the next one. And I'm like, da-da-da-da-da. And they're like, pass has maple. By the time I get to the 10th cell, it's like, ah, you know, and they're laughing, going up peace <laughs> signs. And I said, I'm coming back, you know. And so we rallied this whole little block. And then I'm walking out with the uh, captain. And he goes, they're not allowed to shout in this prison <laughs> so, I had to shout, you know, so you know that's kind of how it went down and then i went back and saw him several times and it became a really cool thing i went to out to be with jeff and stayed at his house in san diego um uh, probably nine months out of 12 in 2016 going in 2017 every month i go out there and stay five days we go down in tijuana and find miracles man. Mm-hmm. and it changed my life wow. it led to 
the book I wrote called Protect the Dream, which is the one I do in schools. And that was inspired by those boys in Tijuana. It seems like it's just exploded. Your, your prison ministry, you've been asked to, to work in, in Selma by the government. I mean, it's, it's, it's brought you to rub elbows with quite a few people. Can you just talk about you know, where it's at now in terms of this whole ministry? Can you kind of give a broad picture of what you're doing and the programs you're excited about? Yes. Um, so it, it started, I always remember, it started just because I wanted to go see my little brother. That was it. I didn't have a dream for this becoming my calling and my, you know, 501c3, which became kind of this movement. I didn't have any of that on my radar. I just wanted to go see him. And then that led to the first prison, which kind of magic happened. And it was by accident. And, um, and that led to writing, you know, what became this first journal, you know, kind of like for it is prayer. And, you know, it was going so great. And that prison won institution of the year. And that put me on the map. But then the peace, it didn't last. A war broke out between gangster disciples and the Muslims, and it was deadly. And there were six bodies in five weeks. I mean, that's nationally, you don't hear that much. And, and so I was in the middle of it and they shut the prison down and kicked out all the volunteers and locked everybody down for 14 months. Everybody was on lockdown. And I was like, why are you doing? I mean, I was so, mm-hmm. I was like, why, why'd you let that happen? Can, this can't be your will. Right. And what it did is it pushed me out there. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going to Michigan because I was invited because I spoke at a I don't know, some kind of conference. And a warden there asked me if I could bring my program to Michigan. And that was a game changer because she ended up being a significant warden in my life. And I did work in that prison for a full two years. And we saw almost 2000 inmates go through the program or a different phase of the program. And violence declined by 50%. And it became the safest maximum security prison in in Michigan. And that led me to go to Ohio. And then we saw crazy results in Ohio. And then I was invited to Nebraska and then Kansas. And then, you know, down into Tijuana. And it just kind of started to grow. And again, I was just trying to keep up with it, you know. And But I had established a 501c3. I knew that this is what I was supposed to do. It was very hard to fundraise. Right. It still is, you know, you're going to give so I can go help some guys that have done what they do. And everybody kept saying, go to the kids. People will. And I said, I can't chase the money until if God tells me to go to the kids, I'll go to the kids. And so that's what he did. When I would go to a new prison, um, the schools would typically find out about what was going on in the prison and I'd be asked to speak. And then when I spoke to these kids who are tough audience, you know, 12 year olds in a gym, you know, with bad acoustics, it's very hard to keep their attention. This kept their attention because it was gangster mm-hmm. and it was something that, wow, it was, it was sexy and edgy and right. everything. And so I saw that and I was like, whoa. And so I, I developed a program for the kids and then I would play off one another. I'd, I'd go in and tell the inmates, man, you are the role models to the kids. Do not be knuckleheads because right. I'm promising them y'all are doing this. Then I'd go back to the kids and I'd say, hey, these guys are putting their lives on the line, being peacemakers. Do not dishonor them. Like you need to straighten up, right. follow their example. So the inmates became role models, which made them feel noble. 
the kids had these unlikely role models and they were following and it, and it just kind of developed a life of its own. So the, the school ministry was born out of it. But then I kind of made the mistake of spreading out too fast because there was a lot of demand. So I would go and launch the program and it started diluting, you know, the power of it. And so, you know, I had to, to really focus and the big, I mean, really it kind of changed over 10 years, but then the pandemic <laughs> it shut me down. I mean, I, I live audiences is my whole career. And so I had to recreate this thing and figure out what is my best and highest. If I got one life to live, what's the biggest dent I can make in the world? And it was prevention, try to keep kids out of prison and shatter that school to prison pipeline. And so I started doing more inner city schools and then I started doing more juvenile justice, you know, juvenile facilities. And now 2021, I always choose a word you know, that kind of is my theme for the year. I don't know if you do that. Yes. And this year, the word was harvest. Hmm. And I thought, man, for 10 years, I've been planting and sowing and weeding and fertilizing and watering and doing all this stuff. Right. Ready to bear some fruit on this thing, Lord. And sure enough, I mean, crazy doors have opened. And now, I mean, I sit on the Georgia um, gang prevention and intervention commission for the state of Georgia house of representatives as one of two civilians, the rest of them are all, you know, government folks. Um, I'm now gang certified, um, you know, in K through 12 gangs in our schools and gangs in our juvenile facilities. And so for whatever reason, I'm considered a, once again, I feel like they think I'm a specialist and I yeah. feel like well, an expert, and, in, expert in the field. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm starting to be looked at like that. And um, the latest book, The New Convict Code, really kind of just opened doors and gave me more credibility. And so that has expanded my reach and exposure. And but it's really, I think, because I got very deliberate and intentional about what is the thing I can do. And it's keep kids out of prison. So I now partner with law enforcement. I do schools, I do juvenile facilities, and then of course I have the church program right. that tries to get Christians to care about the least of these. Okay. Yeah. I want to backtrack a little bit because you talked about five years of seeking and kind of putting your life back together. Were you going to church at that time? And, and you had mentioned that you were, you know, just exploring all sorts of different options. Can you just describe what what you were doing to reconnect with God and, and rebuild your relationship with him? Absolutely. These are great questions, by the way. Um, no, I wasn't going to church. I was, um, first I was mad, disillusioned, you know, just, I was mad at him. I was mad at y'all. I was mad at all the wrong people. <laughs> right. And I was very disillusioned, like, man, everything that I believe was a lie and, it, and not about Jesus. And so um, I never, ever, was mad at him and i never stopped believing or adoring him i just went crazy for a minute and but i didn't want to come back to church there's too much pain and shame involved because my fall was public and i wasn't ready to face that right and i felt like you know there's too much judgment and gossip and slander and whether all that was true or not that's how i felt and so i'm gonna stay out here and that was when I just kind of, I call it my, my spiritual walkabout, you know, I started just following invitations and open doors and my, my motto became, every time I would 
speak, I would say I'd go where I'm invited. <laughs> and then I would follow the next invitation. Right. And so my board ended up saying, quit saying that. You gotta stay in your lane, dude. Um, and so I got invitations and and I started traveling and and now this was not great for my marriage, which I'm sure will come up in a minute, but um, but I was out there on my own and and I didn't it was me. And I think maybe it was a time. You know, sometimes when God healed people, when Jesus healed people, he'd take them away from the crowd. You know, and I feel like he was taking me away from the crowd. This is a time you're going to have to do on your own, kind of the hero's journey. You know, it's time to take some mountains and, you know, storm some castles and slay mm -hmm. some dragons and hopefully win the maiden. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I did that and, and it took me crazy places, you know, to Africa and Asia and Latin America and just crazy and I was walking in these crazy places and I'd get off a plane in a place I'd never been just solo and I would have somebody there was waiting on me you know I'd ride in with another group of people I didn't know and and it ended up helping me develop a, a relationship with the Holy Spirit which I never really had mm -hmm. I believed in him I knew he indwelled me I knew what the Bible said he was and what he wasn't but I had never really experienced an intimacy with him like I felt with Jesus and the father. And there were times where I felt like the father was disappointed. Jesus was mad at me, but the Holy spirit was just kind of a concept, even though I said him. And when I was out there, I found myself in a place where I had to find out who he was and develop a relationship and rely on him because I didn't have anything else. I didn't have anybody else. I didn't have my band of brothers around me. Like I do now. Right. I wasn't connected, you know, back with the church like I am now. And so um, it was me discovering, and it wasn't that I was looking for the truth because I didn't think I found it. I wanted to learn and experience and discover all the things that I had judged. That's just on me, right. whether it be other faith traditions, you know, different third world countries, you know, science. I became just a student, man, studying theology and cosmology and quantum mechanics and mm -hmm. philosophy. I just went crazy. And I traveled the world, you know, and I, I went in mosques and ashrams and cathedrals and synagogues and sweat lodge. And I just did this. And I sat with gurus and monks and imams and <laughs> rabbis and I just did Indian shamans. And, and uh, it changed me because it gave me a global perspective, which helped me a lot with learning to love people without an agenda. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I came full circle, and came back around. I wasn't mad at y'all anymore. <laughs> I wasn't mad at him. You know, I had finally dealt with a lot of my shame. Um, and I was more in love with Jesus than I'd ever been. And I think there's a lot of wonderful brothers and sisters that might be afraid to discover other things because oh, what if I find out something I don't know and it messes me up? It's like, right. come on, dude. I mean, real faith can be challenged. Right. Tested. Right. And I came back like, man, Jesus is so in a circle of one. I mean, they ain't nobody close to him and right. no other faith, but I respected those faiths. Sure. You know, and I learned a lot of that in prisons, you know, dealing with people that didn't look like me, think like me, believe my, like me, vote like me. I've been the minority in my work, the majority of my career, which is a blessing for a white middle-class dude right. from the Bible belt. Right. 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 Absolutely. Why did you come back to church? Why? I think it was my wife. 
yeah, I was remarried in 06. And, you know, we were, I think, I know what it was. We, we um, lived in a neighborhood and there were some friends of ours that had become friendly neighbors and they invited us, you know, to a church. And she and I had started, we called ourselves free agents and we would go, um, <laughs> we went to a couple of our churches and that was very hard. I'm just being transparent. And I, again, I can't blame anybody, but I show up with a wife that they don't know. They knew the last. Right, exactly. And God bless her, you know, um, and they didn't know her. And it was kind of like all lies on her. And we had some experiences that were very challenging where she wasn't necessarily embraced, not because of a lack of love, just because she does, she's not really one of us. If she right, isn't. right. And so that was hard for her, for me, you know, it was very challenging. And so we did that a couple of times and then we just started visiting different churches and we come out and say, what do you think? Now think about my standards, you know, what I was used to, what I helped build. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, uh, you know, we just kept on going. And then we went to a church, which is a, it's a non-denominational church um, in the Atlanta area. And <laughs> I always would go up and I'd, I'd shake hands with the preacher and look him in the eye and want to kind of feel him and, and see, you know, let's have lunch if I wanted to find out who he was. And but we got out in the parking lot and my wife said, somewhat jokingly, she said, I don't know where you're going next week, but I'm going to be here. <laughs> and so I was like, all right. So we started going there. Now, here's how God used this was this pastor who became and is a good friend of mine, serves on my board. Um, I've never seen a community pastor like him. I mean, he taught me how to build community ministry. I mean, he has monthly Bible studies, uh, Bible study groups, small groups with ones with high school football coaches. Another one is with police chiefs. Another one is with business leaders. Another one is with um, other pastors in the area. I mean, he's never in his office. He's always out in the community. He's the chaplain for the local high school football team. He's the pitching coach for their baseball team. You will not find him in the church building um, he's out serving and the congregation has a couple of mayors, a couple of police chiefs, a superintendent of schools. I mean, just like this is the community. Right. And I've never experienced that. Nobody ever taught me how to do that. Um, and so I was in school and, uh, and it was really important for me to learn that because right. I don't know that I'm doing what I'm doing if I hadn't been under him. Right. And so God just used that big time and that began changing my heart. You know, and then I began being asked to come back and preach in some of our churches, which I thought was just like, wow, they're being so gracious to me because I made a mess of things, right. you know, and, and uh, so, but anyway, he used what we gave him. Does that make sense? Yeah. And just kept on, I, I never, I always missed him. But then again, I felt like he never, ever left me. Hmm. He was with me. Even though I took him, you know, the prodigal son, I now see that that story as the prodigal father. You know, the word prodigal, you know, this means right. lavish. It right. doesn't mean left and return. Right. And so it's a it's a story about the father whose love is lavish. And that's what he did. Hmm. He like chased me, stalked me, and 
and just wouldn't let me go. And I've got such a conviction and I preach this in the right way when I get an opportunity is be very careful how we feel and judge people who wander away because God is so much more loyal and loving that he chases the prodigal. Mm. Now I see him, we just assume he waited on the ranch, man. I don't know. He might've gone to that district, uh, distant country and been very involved behind the scenes. What right. his son was up to right. protecting him. And that was a huge deal for me mm. is, you know, the way that, that I, I saw him, you know, changed me because I was always thinking I'm in trouble. And if I do something stupid, I hope I don't die right now. So I'm gonna go to hell. Right. And I was so not understanding amazing grace, hmm. you know. So and I know that scares people. Right. When we start talking about grace like that, we start getting worried, hmm. you know. Yeah. So is that the church you're going to now, or are you a part of a ICOC family of churches? It's it's a very interesting, um, I believe, calling that I have right now. So the way that we have it set up right now, the setup that is that right. We're very much involved with that congregation that I just talked about in, in our area. And it's, it's got a lot of elements that I think that, you know, our people would really love and learn a lot from. Um, at the same time, I have a band of, of brothers and sisters that surround us that I have iron sharpen, sharpening iron relationships that are more healthy and deep than I ever knew in the ministry. And those are all, these are all brothers and sisters from around the country. And especially in my little group where we, we, we do life together on me, you know, virtually like this, because right. we're all in place. And he surrounded me and then I've been embraced by so many congregations and whether I knew it or not, I found myself following the ministry of Paul. Cause if you look at Paul, he wasn't a part of the, he was never accepted in Jerusalem. Not really. When he came back to Jerusalem, he was in trouble. You know what I'm saying? And then he'd hit the road again. He was doing a ministry that was unknown to the movement at that time. And he was breaking all the rules. You know, it's like Paul's, you know, it's all about Paul. He's solo. He's out there doing things, lost his way. His doctrine is, you know, I worry about Paul's doctrine. I lived through all of that, mm. although I never changed what I believed mm. about how someone, you know, becomes a Christian. Right. And so, um, that has been, I know this is a convoluted answer. I'm doing the best I can with it. I am challenged and I believe called to preach Jesus where he hasn't been preached. And to Paul, when he was by himself, it was dangerous. Paul, when he had a Timothy, a Silas, you know, and a Papyrus, a Aristarchus, or a, you know, Demas, or a you know, John Mark or a Barnabas, he always had his little crew and then he'd fall out with a couple of them and they'd leave. Paul's crazy. And then another one that has been the story of my ministry is, mm. you know, just, and so I think that God knew it was unsustainable. So about in 2016, when God brought Jeff Wadstrom into my life, that was the first of developing relationships. Like, I feel like maybe you and I are developing, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Where, I mean, I trust you and you've embraced me with humility and, and trusted me with your church and we've shared life and I've cried all the time. And funny. <laughs> and so you, you feel what I'm saying? And so 
Atlanta's a very interesting situation, you know, with a lot of churches that right. you want to church. And it's a it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting thing. So I'm I'm very connected to one of the congregations. I think I'm um I think there's a lot of people in Atlanta that maybe follow my ministry that I feel very, very cool with. But I think in a lot of ways that ch- the, the churches in Atlanta are not quite sure what to do with me because mm-hmm. it's very out of the box. I can imagine but through the 40 days of prayer. I've been embraced. So Paul, he had, if he said, Paul, where's your home church? He'd go, what's that? <laughs> it depends. And when I'm in Ephesus, oh, I got people there. When I got you in Corinth, it's a mess, but I love them. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like that's where God has me. And a lot of people might not understand that or even agree with it, but I got to be honest with the question. Right, right. Well, let's go ahead and leave it right there. So Kit, you've, you've written six books now, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your writing because I, I've been, my wife and I, our whole church have been going to, through your book, 40 Days of Prayer. It's, it's a great, it's a great book, but the, the thing that impresses me is your writing style. Um, you're an excellent writer, super concise. It reminds me of a letter that Pascal wrote when he wrote somebody and he said, I'm sorry for writing such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. And you made it so condensed. I mean, these, these articles that you write day by day are two pages at the most, including scripture. And yet they're they're impacting. It's like getting a, a slap in the face every morning, just like a, a, a bracing impact. And so you, you talked a little bit about your first book, but what, what motivates you to get into the whole writing arena? Okay. Um I'm I'm glad we touched on this because it would have been, you know, it I need to this is a huge part of my story. So I went to rehab, right? And this was 2004. And Ben Barnett, who a lot of your, you know, viewers, listeners would will know Ben. You know, Ben is a, you know, had a, a big impact and been there for a long time. Um, he and I came up, well, I came up before him. He kind of came up after me a little bit. And but we became close. And um, and then I was gone and he stayed. And when I was out, like, I don't remember what the deal was, but during rehab, I was out at um, maybe a movie or something. There's different activities. And I saw him and Tammy in a car. And I was so, I didn't want to see him. I went the other way because I was, again, shame, so much shame. And, uh, but that, that kind of struck me because it was like, man, Ben was my guy. Right. And several years later, I just felt moved, reach out to Ben. You know, I think the Holy Spirit was tapping me. And so I reached out to him. We got lunch and we started talking. I told him my story. And he basically said, God's not done with you yet, bro. Hmm. And now there's a lot of people that were saying, God's done with you. (laughs) You know, and and I had done the hired hand thing. And I came back into Ben's church and was an usher. I'd never been an usher. I told the ushers what to do. And so as old as story, but, but anyway, we began to get together and talk and, and that was after the church in Atlanta had become six churches and, and he had one. And um, <clears throat> anyway, we just started going, it was a long way away, but my wife and I just started going and, um, and they embraced us. They embraced my wife 
which was significant and vouched for her, you know, and because um, really she went through a process and she didn't want to or need to. She'd been baptized a couple of times. She wanted to get baptized again. I mean, it was like, but we needed someone to really embrace and be thorough and help us understand kind of where we were at. And, they, and Ben and Tammy did that. And so then <laughs> he, we started talking about me preaching again. Now, I didn't want to be preaching again. That was too much pain. And I was like, uh. and he, he said, bro, you know, God's not done with you yet. And so I got up and preached and it was the first time in a long time. And it woke up something in me. And that led to a number of months and then the invitation to come into the full-time ministry again. And not, not my wife working with the church, but you know things had changed a bit. And so whew, with fear, fear and trepidation, I said, yes. And this was um, a beautiful congregation that happened to be almost all people don't look like me, mm-hmm. and which was a beautiful thing. And so I was up under Ben and, um, and that was a very important season of life. But when he hired me, I was like, what do you want me to do? I mean, what are you going to, I can't, I'm not leading the marriage. <laughs> I'm not leading the kids. I'm right. singles on campus. I mean, I'm, I'm older now. And he said, and I quote, I want you to go into the world, find out what God's up to and come back and tell us. And I said, you're going to pay me for that. You know, it was the best assignment. I was like, think about how out of the box that is, Rob. Right. And so, um, and and so that's what I did. You know, I went out and I went to the homeless shelter and I started serving there. And we grew a congregation of homeless brothers. So on Wednesday nights, he didn't he didn't he knew I wasn't coming to midweek. I was going to the shelter, and we had 80, 100 guys, man, rocking just homeless. <laughs> And we made a choir and they were horrible, <laughs> but they were just beautiful. They performed at, at our church down at, you know, Ben's church, our homeless choir. And it was, it was so awesome. And uh, so that became, I was like, I come back and preach about that. And all these homeless guys were coming to church. We have a whole row of homeless guys and they might've been up all night drunk going, come on, kid. And I'm like, you know, I mean, it was wild. It was like first century kind of stuff. And then I found the prison. Now, first it was Luis and they started writing letters, you know, to um, Luis. And then I went into the first prison and it was, lights came on and I came back and I started preaching about the prison. So basically that is how, you know, I started to to come back to life again. And I went away. What was the original question? Because I'm not going to answer it if you because I went off on a rabbit trail. What motivated you to start writing? There you go. Thanks. <laughs> you got to help me every now and then. You know me. Um, and so anyway, when I started coming back and being down there with um, with that church and they embraced my wife, um, I felt like I had a story to tell. And at the end of the day, anybody that's heard me speak, especially preaching, I'm a storyteller. And that's probably the, the my strength. And then I'll teach from those stories. Right. And so that was what I attempted to do with my first book in 2010, which was called Unshackled, Diary of a Prodigal Son. Mm. And I had found the prison ministry. It was changing my life. And so I wrote a book. And the way that I wrote it was I came up with 22 stories and that were all significant. And those became chapters. And I would tell the story. And then I would 
relate the principles, kind of like in 40 Days of Prayer. You right. know, you've got the story in scripture, and then I do a little commentary and a challenge. And so that was how I wrote that first book, was a story that I, I could really tell to paint the picture, some takeaways, and then an application to why it is relevant, like something about Jesus and how he cared about that. And it was 22 chapters that basically told my story of the drunken fallen preacher, you know, mm. that was brought back by a bunch of beautiful convicts and gangsters and homeless wow. brothers. And so that was my first attempt. And I always put a disclaimer on anybody that buys that book unshackled <laughs> that, hey, it was my first attempt to be easy on me, <laughs> you know. And then that led to a series of smaller books that I wrote just for the prisons, you know, and I did them kind of the same way. It was I would set the stage and then it was a couple of quotes from King and Gandhi and Mandela and famous world changers. I made it inclusive because I had to have the Muslims. I couldn't leave them out and bring right. these to a prison. Right. And so it was very inclusive. And so those were more like what became the curriculum. Um, but then I wrote a, another book called Peace Behind the Wire. And this was my first attempt to start to say, hey, here's what I have learned. And here's why my programs work. And that one, I was lucky enough to win an award for wow, that. I saw and, that. Yeah, an honorable mention. This is funny. An honorable mention um, in the state of Georgia for uh, author of the year, independent book writers. But I tied uh, with Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Wow. And so that kind of, you know, I was proud of that book. Um, and it, it was kind of like, whoa, I think I feel a little bit like an author now. And that one kind of set me out there to, to try to start being an expert in my field. And then I did another one called Protect the Dream. And then the last one I did, which is the new convict code, is the one that I think is the most significant. It's definitely the longest book, um, but it's still very story driven. But I tell people that say, man, I want to write a book, which I'm so glad so many people are writing books. They outlive us. Right. Our grandkids and great grandkids are going to know who their grandfather and great grandfather was right. because book is in the library of congress it never goes away. <laughs> that's right it never goes away and so if somebody says man i don't know where to start i'm like start telling stories about your life right and then divide them up into chapters and try to you know some takeaways and i that's kind of how i learned to write and so you know that's that's how that worked but i think that we need stories in today's world we need you know However they get them out there, stories are so powerful. How do you write so concisely and clearly? You have an editor or you do it yourself? I, I type every word myself, um, and I'm not a great typist. But this last one was probably, I don't know, 82,000 words. You know, I mean, it's a, I don't know, 250 pages, something like that. And so that one's, you know, significantly more than, than my other books. But um, I did, I found a local um, kind of medium level publisher that they're a big, they're a pretty good size little publishing house with departments instead of just, you know, a couple of guys in a small shop. And um, I'm so grateful for Tony Mulholland, Paul Vasquez, because right. they, they helped me get my message to the world and they still do, you right. know what I'm saying? But, this was a little bit of a level up to um, where they're very serious about editing. Right. And so you develop the manuscript, it goes in and they go through three rounds of editing and rewrites because they, it can be as simple as this is not a good transition from this paragraph, to this paragraph, right. we need to have a connecting point or this is vague right here. You're being a little redundant right here. 
And it's the manuscript doesn't change a lot from the finished project, but, but uh, the product, but there is a lot more scrutiny and that that's helped my writing a lot. But um, as far as why, you know, concisely, I think, um, I don't know, a lot of times if you're a good communicator, you can write, or if you're a good writer, you can communicate and it's how you put words together. And I always try to do it where a, a person that's uncomplicated, a little more simple, which I learned to do this in prisons, or someone who's a PhD or someone who's a, a young person, all can receive the message. And I think Jesus preached like that. Mm -hmm. And if he could, if we would have written, I think he would have written like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of stories, very succinct to the yep. point and something everybody can relate to. Yeah. It was, it's, it's just been a good lesson as a writer to, to, to learn from reading your book, I thought you you capture the 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 heart of the scripture and then get right to the point, and uh, it's it's excellent, well written. So, I could talk I to you a whole that. podcast just about that, but let's just change the subject and talk about that arm sleeve you've got. That mm -hmm. is a serious tattoo on your right arm. Can you tell me about that? Tell me about that. Absolutely. I don't know if people watch or listen to this. But <laughs> They're going to be listening. Yeah. It's it's. It goes it's shoulder <laughs> down to your wrist. Yeah. And um, it started as one tattoo on my wrist. This one right here. Okay. And it's a broken peace sign with 40 on it. And the zero is a teardrop. And so to me, it was like, man, in prison, we're trying to repair the peace that's been broken and lost. And 40 days at a time, and the teardrop is for the inmates, obviously, that we've lost, right? So, and that was it. I said, I told my wife, baby, that's, that's it. I only get one tattoo. <laughs> I had, I think, maybe one on my back then. I got a long time ago, but I don't remember. But anyway, and then I thought, well, it's not quite done. So I'm going to finish it, babe. I'm just going to kind of, you know, so I did that. And then I went to Michigan, like I told you, and the prison peace movement just boom, went on blast up there. And so I made a commitment to them. And I said, if you guys do this with all your heart and we make a significant reduction in violence, when I come back, I will have you on my arm forever. And I don't know what possessed me to tell them that. And so I came back the next time, month, two months later, whatever. And they're like, hey man, did you do it? And I'm like, do what? And they're like, get the tattoo. And I went, man, I wasn't serious. And they're all hard and everything. And I went, <laughs> and I showed him and it said mighty men of Muskegon because wow. that's Muskegon correctional right and I, I couldn't believe how much it meant to them because mm. I said I can't forget you because mm. you're on my arm I see you every day bro oh. and so they're like whoa this guy and so then it became my thing. So the next prison, I'm like, do something significant and I'll put you on my arm. And so then I'd write a book and I'd put that slogan on my arm. And then I would, you know, Jesus is right in the middle. He's the center of everything. But yeah. it came kind of my story and it's peace and cultures from around the world. I've got prisons that are on there. This whole part here is Tijuana and that prison I told you about. And, and so it just became my story. And it's, it's 80 individual tattoos. Like it happened over a number of years as something new would happen, it would go on there. And then the next, then the next, until I ran out of room and my wife said, you're done. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And now, you know, no, I wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, now you're working on the left arm. <laughs> yeah, but I, pro 
Well, I'm guessing my doesn't carry a lot of weight, but I said no big no sleeve on this one. But there anyway. you go. There so you go. it's a testament, you know, a tribute to all those brothers behind the wire. Reminds me of the Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. You've got a, a story to tell on your body. Yeah. If kid, if you could go back and disciple yourself as a baby Christian, maybe your first year, what, what would you tell that version of yourself? Well, great question. I know what I would tell him. I don't think he was in position to listen, but I think what I would tell him is um, this whole thing is not about you and you are not your reputation. You are not people's opinion of you. You are not your past. You're not your failures. You're not your, you know, it was, there was still so much ego, you know, and ego operates unaware. You know, ego is the false self. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you guys, and I say you guys, the beautiful fellowship of churches, they gave me everything that I was looking for. You know, y'all laughed at all my jokes. You stood and cheered when I got done, even if I didn't do well. You lined up to come and hug me and tell me I was awesome. <laughs> and it, it was a slippery, subtle thing that I didn't realize that I was getting my security from how you felt about me and how well I performed. Mm -hmm. So if I didn't do well in my sermon and I knew Steve knew, I was terribly insecure and felt like that I was, I was distant from God. And I was, I felt horrible about myself. And then if I knocked it out of the park and Steve or the other guys were, were like, bro, that was awesome, man. I was filled with confidence, felt close to God. I was, and you know, that, that was my fatal flaw, um, because I really was pleasing men. And then if they were pleased, I felt like God was pleased. Mm -hmm. And that if I went back and saw that young man, you know, I would try to help him understand, you know, the true self. Right. And, and really it's not about you. You're the vessel for God to do what he's going to do. So my preaching, I, I don't watch it, you know, people will say things about sermons. It's always good. I remember a sermon you preached in and I always follow with, I don't know what I said. I hope I didn't hurt anybody, you know, but my preaching was so theatrical and there was so much volume and there was so much passion and there was power to it, but I felt like it wasn't necessarily Holy Spirit power, although it came from a very deep, uh, sincere place. Um, I didn't really know who I was. And so I was trying to, if if I felt like I was losing y'all, I would ramp it up more passion, more intensity. Well, I, I don't know what you think, but you've seen me preach virtually. And I don't know that I do that as much anymore. It's not kind of look how awesome. It's just trying to be vulnerable and relate to people. So I would try to get that young person and say, Hey, one, slow down. You don't need to be going up, being put out in front (laughs) yet. You're the wounded little boy. Um, and like I said, I don't know that I could have received it. You know, you learn right. what you learn when you're right. ready. Exactly. Yeah. How's your second marriage different than your first? <laughs> I think I'm different than I was in my first, you know, that we were married at 24 and 21, you know, we were engaged when I went in the ministry. I had stopped drinking right before I became a Christian. 
And so going into my marriage and early on in my marriage, I was in this weird place of sobriety, which is not easy. Anybody's trying to get there. The first year or two is very hard. And so our marriage started in a very tough place, but I was in the ministry. So everything was new. And over time, you know, the, the marriage just, it, there was a lack of intimacy and, um, and not, I wouldn't blame her for anything even though I did, I, I don't, I see myself. And um, I just, I assumed that everything was better than it was, you know, cause we were so protected. We were discipled. We were the experts in marriage and counseling and children. And, and yet it wasn't a real passionate, intimate, and I'm not just talking about physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And I would try and we would be open and we would get help, but I was not in a place where I'm not saying I wasn't able, but I didn't take care of her needs. Mm. And then that is not sustainable. And mm. so it grew cold. And then when I started struggling, you know, with drug and alcohol abuse again, um, it wasn't, um, you know, savable, salvageable. Mm. And um, in my second marriage to be just, I mean, I started the same way. <laughs> I got sober when we were engaged. It was almost a redo. And then we got married in the first year of sobriety. And I went into the second marriage all jacked up with this hard to get sober. This was even harder the first time. Right. And um, and she rode with me on that. And I went off on this crazy ride and I I left her behind, you know. So it's not like the second marriage has been incredible. You know, I learned all my right. lessons. I fell in love with my ministry, and in many ways, the ministry became the other woman mm. and my my wife started to resent my ministry, which I'm like, why don't you love my right. ministry? And it's like saying, why don't you love the other woman? She's awesome. And everybody loves her. <laughs> and so, you know, so there was a real distance and I left, I was traveling so much. I left her at home and God just touched it. And it was perfect time, perfect place. Our, our beloved dog died. We came together. It's so crazy. When our dog died young, we love this dog. I don't know, it brought us together and it started what became a five-year recovery program. First 12 years were hard. Mm. These last five years have been, you know, marriage is a challenge, but every year I just repented and I decided all the things I didn't do in the first one. And I want to love her, you know, really completely. And I repented and all the things that she always wanted to do that I was never willing to do. You know, I mean, and I say all this as uh, um, to glory to God, not look what I do now. But these are all facts. You know, we we take the dogs for a walk together after work, you know, almost every day when the weather's good. Um, we, you know, have dinner together every night and I help her cook. I never would ever help her cook. Mm. We garden together. It's a cool hobby. You know what I'm saying? We, um, you know, we have special nights during the week where, you know, I don't know if this is a completely adult show where, but it can be, you know, game night, massage night. Right. Um, she, I, I shop with her. I used to tell her, I just don't do that, babe. And I <laughs> shop with her and, and I look forward to coming home to her because we have special night. We're empty nesters, which <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. Oh yeah. But now it's almost like a competition who can take care of the other one better. And we have all kinds of little games and ways to do it. We flirt throughout the day with texts, you oh. know, and, take a bath together every night. And I mean, it's just like, we're living this dream where we still have our challenges, 
obviously. Um, but we, I don't know. I never thought that I was capable of intimacy. Mm -hmm. I thought I was damaged goods and I had all the reasons why I'm sorry, baby. I'm just, I can't. And now God's showing me that he can do anything. And I, awesome. I, adore, I adore her. And today is our uh, 15th anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. That's great. So anyway, that's great. Well, thank you so much for the time. It's been a, a great time to talk to you. The class that you taught was fantastic. It, it opened my eyes for Pam and I to start rolling out of bed, praying every morning, looking for the miracles, looking for God working in my life and uh, opening my eyes, opening my ears to see God at work. And it's, it certainly helped. If no one else in the congregation, Pam and I have, have, have benefited and really have enjoyed your book and teaching just to wrap up, what advice would you give to a person who wants to make this life count? I would say, I just have to speak from my own experience. When I began to serve the least of these, and there's a whole lot of people that can be classified in that when Jesus was talking about that, um, it changed me. Mm. It transformed me. And I started realizing that when Jesus said, whatever you do for them, you do for me. Mm. And so I reasoned, okay, then the least of these, man, I need to treat them with special respect and honor all the way to the work I've done on death row. Okay. Is that the least of these? Yes. I think it's the least of the least of the least of these is that brother, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so I started, you know, treating them with more respect than I treat anybody else. And it was just because he said so. And I tried and experiment. And that led me to do my ministry outside of the church. And it mm. was so much more than just inviting people to church, which we ought to do that all the right, time, sure. studying people or discipling people. But it got me out there on what I call the field. And that's where miracles happen. Mm. And so to those that are trying to, what I say is come alive, you know, make the most of this life, this one life is, you know, the meaning of life is to find your unique gift. And then the purpose of life is to give it to the world. And if everybody did that, and that's why I was so heartbreaking broken when I couldn't preach is like, man, um, I, I know what my gift is. I can't give it to the world anymore. And then when I went, started serving in an area that was outside of my comfort zone, I fell in love, you know what I'm saying? And, I, and it started me again. So to those that are trying to shake, you know, the malaise, or if, if it's gotten dull or tired or boring or rote, you know, whatever it is, you've got to get outside of whatever your box is mm -hmm. and start to experience what Jesus really experienced. Those who claim many uh, claim to live in it must walk as Jesus did. Yeah. Okay. Walk like that. Mm -hmm. And then just pray that God reveals to you your special gift and then life will make sense and you'll leave a legacy, you know, whatever it needs to be. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kip, for just coming on the program. It's, it's been fantastic. And, and all the, all of God's blessings on your work and ministry. Thank you so much. And, and uh, really blessings to your show. This is significant. And so, man, I pray for much success. And I hope that I said, uh, you know, what uh, God would have me say today and anything that wasn't of him, I pray that your listeners will forget it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.